Well, good morning, Encounter. Y'all can talk back to me, it's all right. Good morning, Encounter. Good morning to all of you at Fulton Heights, to all of you watching online. It is, it's a joy, it's a pleasure uh, to be with each and every one of you this morning. Uh, To Pastor Dirk, I'm incredibly grateful and thankful for the invitation just to share and to be here with all of you guys. Uh, As he shared, uh, my beautiful wife, Leah, uh, she's here. Our daughter, Nora, is here as well. Um, And we love Encounter Church. We are fans of all of you. Um, We live in the Kentwood area, roughly about seven or eight minutes from here. And so when we're looking for family-friendly things to do with our daughter, we come to Encounter when you guys are having things. Um, The last thing we came to was you kind of had something over Halloween or so, um, and it was cold and it was rainy. But we were here, and we were taking it all in, and uh, we left with, uh, with the impression that you guys are so incredibly generous. Like, my daughter's bag of candy was so incredibly full to the point that we're still eating remnants of it even today. Um, and so we're, we're incredibly thankful for all of you. Um, that may shift when my daughter goes to the dentist and she has a cavity or two, and so y'all may get the bill. Um, But seriously, we're so incredibly uh, grateful and thankful uh, to be here and to worship with all of you guys uh, this morning. I want to say the name and really the couple words, uh, Horatio Spafford. Uh, It's maybe a name you've heard of before, maybe a name that is just brand new to you. Uh, But in case you don't know who this individual is, Horatio, he was a successful lawyer um, and property owner um, in the 1800s in Chicago. It was roughly around the time period of 1871-ish that life for Horatio began to change dramatically. He has a wife, Anna, he has five children, but in this case, his one and only son uh, dies unexpectedly due to scarlet fever. Short time later, the Great Chicago Fire happens that basically demolishes all of his property, or at least the means by which he makes income. With all this transpiring and happening, he decides it would be refreshing for him and his family to take a journey over to England, to have some respite time there, um, and to join D.L. Moody in some of his evangelistic efforts. And so, uh, in a desire to kind of settle some things at home, uh, Horatio goes and sends his wife Anna and four children on a boat over to England to soon join them at a later time. But on this particular boat, in which Anna and the four kids are on, across the Atlantic Ocean, it collides with another boat. And roughly 200 people lost their lives in that accident, including Horatio's four daughters. It's while Horatio's trying to settle everything that he gets a telegram from his wife, Anna, that simply reads, the beginning of that part begins to read, saved alone, what shall I do? In this moment, you can imagine the tears and the grief and everything hitting Horatio in this moment. And so he drops everything and decides to board a boat to go and to see about his grieving wife. As he's on this boat, he's traveling over the Atlantic Ocean, roughly around the spot where the accident occurred. And the captain, well aware of the situation, summons Horatio and says, hey, this is roughly the spot where the accident occurred. You can imagine as Horatio looks over the deep blue waters of the Atlantic Ocean that the tears begin to flow from his eyes. You know that punch grief often hits us with? You can imagine he's been hit with that. That, that, that deep-seated pit that he has in his stomach, it, it, it's there as he looks over the body of water. And it's there, where we don't roughly know if it's roughly then or a little short time later, that he, 
he begins to pen some words down to paper that would later be placed within the very confines of melody to bring forth a familiar hymn that you and I are so incredibly familiar and in love with. Horatio, he begins to pen these words. He says, when peace, like a river, attendeth my soul, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well. It is well with my soul. Here's a man that seemingly lost everything. But he has this conviction. He, he has this assurance. He, he has this comfort. He has this hope that yet in spite of everything in which he's enduring with his suffering, he can yet declare, it is well. Encounter, I would be incredibly lying to you if I suggested that this is the only account within human history of someone suffering. But the reality of the situation is, is that each and every one of us are going to experience periods, times, seasons of suffering. And, and just like Horatio, it can come completely without warning and, and the very manner in which it actually happens or how and the what can be completely different. But each and every one of us we're going to experience seasons and times of suffering. And again, it comes without warning. It's that phone call. It's that email that you read. It's what your eyes witnessed and what you thought was going to be a routine part of your day that changes your life forever. But just like Horatio, we ought to have the same confidence and assurance, the, the, the same hope, the same comfort, even in the suffering you and I are going to endure. When you peruse the very pages of Scripture, there's numerous individuals who endure their own seasons and times of suffering, but there's a familiar person that many of you are probably well aware of that really encounters suffering, and that is the individual by the name of Job. Job is one in which we can kind of look at Horatio and kind of see some similarities, right? When you read in Job chapters 1 and 2, you see Job, he's one who's, who's lost livestock or essentially the very means by which he sustains income. A storm has came going and essentially killing all of his children. Now he has boils all over his body. And at the tail end of Job chapter 2, you find Job sitting in a heap of ash with dust on his head, contemplating his life and the very suffering in which he's enduring. Job, as you peruse through the book, all 42 chapters, there, there are times where his emotions do get the best of him as he's trying to fathom and trying to understand all that's happening. But there are those brief moments where he yet has this assurance, this, this confidence, this comfort, this hope that comes in the midst of suffering. And while his words do not specifically say it as well, the emphasis or the pull suggests Job is saying, in spite of suffering, it is well. So if you have a copy of the Word of God this morning, I would encourage you, join me in Job chapter 19. Job chapter 19 is where we're going to be this morning. It's going to be on the screens if you care to uh, place your attention there. But Job chapter 19, just three verses we're going to focus our attention on this morning. Job 19, starting at verse number 25, Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and that in the end he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. 
I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. When Job, he kind of says this, he's essentially speaking a rebuttal to his dear friend Bildad. When you read in Job chapter 2, there's three friends who come to see about Job. And when they come to see about him, they, they see Job in, in a very state they've never seen him before. And so they, they come before him and they just merely sit with Job in his suffering, not uttering a word. That that's short-lived because when you continue reading, Job's friends try to make sense of his suffering to the point that they are accusing Job of some kind of sin as to kind of bring some kind of correlation to the suffering in which he's experienced. Except the suffering in which Job is experiencing is not associated with sin. He's enduring righteous suffering. He's enduring suffering that correlates with just being a follower of God and living life. And as Job, he writes this, he writes this as a rebuttal to try to come against the accusations. And he says shortly before this that he hopes his very words would be inscribed in stone uh, so that after he dies, they can look back over this and suggest that Job was innocent and he was telling the truth. But while he does kind of write with that aim in mind, he does, or actually speak with that aim in mind, he does speak in such a way where he desires to encourage himself. But with his friends nearby him, I can imagine using my homiletical imagination that, that, that Job closes his eyes and begins to encourage himself in his suffering with the truths he just spoke in our passage of Scripture. He, he begins to encourage himself, in which we'll look at with three things that give him this hope and this, and this comfort and this assurance in the midst of suffering. It, it's there that that Job begins to express this comfort and this hope in a person. He expresses this hope and this comfort in a person, in which we see in verse number 25, it's a kinsman redeemer. He says in verse number 25, I know that my redeemer lives. And as Job says, I know, he is stating his greatest and most deepest conviction. He's not saying, I think a redeemer lives. No, he says, I know that a redeemer lives. And he believes there is a redeemer that is going to come to his defense. Now, again, the writer of Job is incredibly intentional with using this word redeemer. His, that their audience is that of Israel. And so Israel would have been incredibly familiar with the term redeemer or kinsman redeemer. A kinsman redeemer essentially was, was someone of kin who had the responsibility of, of guaranteeing the security and the rights of a fellow kinsman. And just a little bit of everybody couldn't be a kinsman redeemer. There were some requirements that came with being a kinsman redeemer. And you kind of see those on the screen. I just kind of want, want to walk through them just real quickly with you so we can kind of get an idea. Uh, just some of the requirements that came with being a kinsman redeemer. I think the most obvious requirement is that you have to be kin, Right? Like you got to be a cousin, an uncle, and an auntie, or whatever it is. You got to be somewhat related to this person to be a kinsman redeemer. You also had to be willing to go forth and take this opportunity and this task of being a kinsman redeemer. But the last, you had to be able to redeem or pay the necessary price associated with the situation. So a prime example is that of Ruth, the story of Ruth in the Old Testament. You're familiar, and even kind of within Ruth, Naomi experiences a Job or Horatio-type situation. 
Naomi, her husband dies, her two sons die, and she finds herself making the journey back to Bethlehem with her daughter-in-law, Ruth. Ruth, she's there gleaning upon the field, seeking to bring some supplies back home, and it discovers that the field owner, Boaz, is a kinsman redeemer to the family. And when you read through the rest of Ruth, you see that, that Boaz is kin, that he is willing and able, and he's willing to pay the price as far as to marry Ruth to continue the family line. This is a kinsman redeemer. Kinsman Redeemer also had the responsibility of essentially uh, protecting the honor of someone who may have died, who may experience some level of shame. And so if someone died and experienced shame, the Kinsman Redeemer had the responsibility of restoring honor back to that person's life. And this is what Joe believes. Joe believes there is a, there's a person out there that is his Kinsman Redeemer. Except with Job, he's not talking about a physical person who is nearby. Because if you even look in the text, starting at even verse number 13 of Job chapter 19, he says that his family has been alienated from him. Verse 14, his relatives have gone away and his closest friends have forgotten about him. Verse 15, his servants count him as a, as a foreigner. Uh, verse number 17, his breath to his wife is offensive. Some of you can attest to that. Basically, this is, this is symbolizing he is absolutely alone. There's no physical person that's serving as his kinsman redeemer. What Job suggests is his kinsman redeemer, as we keep see, reading at verses 26 and 27, Job believes God is his kinsman redeemer. That as God is his heavenly father, God is willing and able to come to his defense. That God won't be this distant one in which he sought. No, God is going to come to his defense. He is going to be this kinsman redeemer that's going to restore honor to Job even if he were to die in his suffering. Now, he, he says this to encourage uh, himself. He says this to his friends so they can hear. But notice in verse number 25 the possessive language in which Job uses. He says, I know that my redeemer lives. Job could have said, I, I know that a redeemer lives, and he would have been absolutely right. He, he could have said, I know the redeemer lives, and that would have been incredibly true. But it's something special when you make that your own. That, that here is Job saying, I have a redeemer who knows me, and I know him. Here is a redeemer that loves me, and I love him. And he's encouraging himself in his suffering that he has this kinsman redeemer, which is incredibly important because if you read through Job, you know that Job is really confused as to why he finds himself in this season of suffering. I mean, we're made aware as the reader when you read in chapters 1 and 2 that this is a conversation between God and his sovereignty and God, I mean, and Satan trying to inflict things. And so we're made aware of that, but Job doesn't have a context. And so as he's trying to wrestle through his suffering and what appears to be the wrath of God, yet he encourages himself about God, saying that he has a person. He has a kinsman redeemer. Not only does he have a person and a kinsman redeemer, but he also has the placement of this kinsman redeemer. And this placement of the kinsman redeemer is that this kinsman redeemer is going to come standing upon the earth. You see this at the tail end of verse number 25, that, that in the end, he, this kinsman redeemer God, will come standing on the earth. 
Now, when Job says in the end, we're not quite sure as to what Job may have in mind here. We're not quite sure if he's talking about uh, his death in this instance, like and kind of the end of his suffering, or if he's talking about this future kind of eschatological end times kind of thing that he wouldn't even be able to wrestle through at this point. All the more, all we know is that Job believes at some point in time, this kinsman redeemer is going to come standing on the earth to give Job vindication for his suffering and for the accusations that are being made against him. It's interesting, verse number 25, it says that, that this kinsman redeemer will come standing upon the earth. And this word earth in the original language can also be translated as dust. Now, the reason why that is so incredibly important is because remember, in Job, tell in Job chapter 2, Job, he is sitting in the heap of ash with dust on his head. And essentially what Job is conveying is that the very place of heap and ash in which he finds himself sitting in is the very place the kinsman redeemer, God, will come and stand and give him vindication and give him justice over everything that's occurred. Or another way of saying it, Job is saying that in the very place of his humiliation, there, were his, there is where his kinsman redeemer God will stand and give Job victory through him. That through his humiliation of accusations and through his humiliation of suffering, even the very place in which Satan has appeared that he has won is going to be the place where the kinsman redeemer will stand giving Job victory through him over his accusations, over his suffering, and over where it appears Satan thought he had won. He, he has this comfort and hope in a person who is his kinsman redeemer, this comfort and hope in his placement, which is standing upon the earth, but he also has this hope and comfort in a promise surrounding this kinsman redeemer. And this promise is that he will see God. That, that, that's the promise he, he clings and he holds on to when you look in verses 26 and 27. He says there that after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. That I will see him with my own eyes and I, not another, how my heart yearns within me. That here is this kinsman redeemer who's going to see after Job, who's going to stand upon the earth. And, and Job believes that is in that moment, after all is said and done, that he is going to see God. That after suffering has worn its course, after every tear has been shed, after the very plan and purpose of God for his suffering has been accomplished, Job believes without a shadow of a doubt, he will see God. Now again, kind of like the last point, we're not quite made aware as to what time period in which Job is talking about. We don't know if it's talking about the end of his suffering physically, or if he's talking about some kind of a resurrected body. Either way, Job has this assurance. He, he has this confidence, this comfort, this hope that when everything is said and done, he is going to see God. And he says here in the text that, that the mere thought makes him grow faint. It yearns within him. That as he thinks about everything he's endured, as he thinks about the pain that's currently radiating in his body, as he thinks about his dear children who were killed as he, see, thinks about everything in which he's lost, yet the mere thought of seeing God and realizing that once he sees him, the suffering is over and the grief is done and the, and the pain is gone, he grows emotionally faint. 
He yearns. He, he desires. He's craving it because when God comes and he sees God, suffering is over. All will be well. He clings onto this promise and comfort and in hope that he will see God. And so what we have here, again, it doesn't really emphasize or really say specifically like Horatio that, that it is well. But the force of this person and this placement and the promise seems to emphasize Job suggesting in spite of suffering that it is well. It doesn't excuse the suffering in which Job is, is navigating through. Don't, don't, don't take that. What Job is experiencing is real, and, and it hurts, and there's pain, and there's grief. It's not saying that this doesn't exist. It exists. But what Job is saying, even while he's in it, essentially that all is well. Because he has a kinsman redeemer who will stand upon the earth, who will give him justice and vindication, and soon he will see God. You're probably thinking to yourself, this is, this is encouraging. This is great. I'm, and I'm excited for Job. But what about me? What about me in, in my own seasons and times and, and periods of suffering? What about me as I've recently got that diagnosis that I never thought would be uttered to me? What about as I watch my parents begin to age, and I don't know how to, how to wrestle and, and to fathom that. How, how, what about me as I, as I watch my adult children make unhealthy, unhealthy decisions, and they, they no longer value my thoughts, my opinion, my authority anymore? What about me when I go to a job that doesn't value me, doesn't, doesn't appreciate me, that discriminates against me. What about me? What about as I live in a city, in a state, in a world that seems not to value who I am? How do I handle seasons of suffering that I encounter in my life? Well, believer of Jesus Christ, you can also have confidence and assurance and comfort and hope you can likewise have the same exact thing. You, in the face of all confusion, all doubts, in the midst of suffering in which you can't seem to understand, you, just like Job, can have confidence and assurance, comfort and hope. That just as we imagine with Job as he's around others and he closes his eyes to speak these very things. You, amongst others, whether you're here, Fulton Heights, or at home, you likewise can close your eyes and you can speak with confidence the very things in which Job himself even spoke. That you, believer of Jesus Christ, have a kinsman redeemer. You, you, you have a kinsman redeemer. If we can place those, those three requirements back on the screen just so we can kind of walk through that together again. You, you have a kinsman redeemer. Because here is the same God who goes and desires to redeem and to rescue Job and even Israel for that matter is the same God who sends his dear son Jesus Christ to rescue and to redeem humanity from sin. The, the, the same Jesus who is the son of God and as you are a believer of Jesus Christ, that makes you a child of God, which means Jesus is kin. 
Not only is Jesus kin, but as Jesus is sent to earth for the sins of all mankind, and as Jesus willfully surrenders and gives of his life as a servant to God, taking on the cross, experiencing nails in his hands and, and nails in his feet as he's been whipped and as he has a crown of thorns etched into his head and blood begins to flow, it shows his willingness to redeem and to rescue all of humanity. And as Jesus is one who is on the cross, speaks seven powerful and profounding words as he's on the cross and Jesus begins to die and his body is placed into a borrowed tomb, it indicates the price he was willing to pay for our rescue and for our redemption. Believer of Jesus Christ, you have a kinsman redeemer who fits every single requirement. But not only do we have this kinsman redeemer who, who fits every single requirement, we have this person, this kinsman redeemer, we, we also have this comfort and the hope of his placement. Because this same Jesus who died and was put into a borrowed tomb is yet the same Jesus who the Father raises on the third day, who now sits at the right hand of the Father waiting to obey the Father's voice one more time. And as he waits to obey the Father's voice one more time, the Father will send him down to earth. And when Jesus comes down to earth, he will stand on the earth, which means Jesus is going to come stand Standing in the place of our humiliation, stand in the place of our suffering, stand in the place of our sin, stand in the place where it appears Satan has won and he is going to be victorious over your accusations, over your suffering, over your sin, over death, and he's going to defeat Satan once and for all. His victory is our victory. But now that we have this person, we have this placement, yet we have a promise. Because when suffering has thrown its last blow to our bodies, when pain has ran its course, when every tear has been shed, when all is said and done, when the book of our lives is closed on this side of eternity as well as our eyes, our eyes will awaken to a new book being opened, where our names will be found, where we will hear a voice that says, well done, good and faithful servant, and we will see God. The encouragement believer of Jesus Christ is that you can have hope and encouragement. You can have this conviction and assurance and suffering because you have Jesus Christ. You have hope, you have comfort in life, and you have hope and comfort even in death. Now, I know we don't like to talk about that because when we are experiencing times, seasons of suffering, we, we, we have this hope, we have this expectation, we, we have this desire that we will make it out of suffering so we can testify about it. But Paul says that to live is Christ and to die is gain. There is no fear in death. You have hope whether there is breath in your body, and there is hope when breath leaves your body. You have Jesus as you are alive and well. And you have Jesus even when death comes in through suffering. Jesus is always there. The encouragement for you and I, the call for you and I as the church 
is to rest and to trust and to have this assurance and comfort and hope, understanding that when we encounter suffering, we have the gift of Jesus Christ, even in the midst of such suffering. So, so if I can give you some um, encouragement this morning, uh, just some encouragement as a form of application this morning, I just want to share uh, just two quick things with you and then um, I'll take my seat. First thing I want to share with you is that, honestly, it matters how you suffer. It really does. It matters how you suffer. Here is Job, and he encounters the bulk of his suffering before the presence of his friends. He's evidencing something to them, whether he realizes it or not. And in turn, it matters how you suffer. I say that because oftentimes when we are in times and seasons and periods of suffering that we're, we're so focused on the ugliness of it all that we fail to see the beauty of God and what he's promised even in suffering. That perhaps, that perhaps the reason the Lord has allowed suffering to happen in your life is so just like Job, you can be a witness to other people so that they can begin to discern and see the truth of God and who God is in and through how you suffer so that they themselves can come into a saving relationship through Jesus Christ. Perhaps the reason why the Lord is allowing suffering in your life is so that there can be some work done on the inside of you. Paul says in Romans chapter 5 that our suffering, it brings about perseverance, it brings about character, and it brings about this hope. And maybe... The reason why you find yourself in a season of suffering is the Lord wants to develop and strengthen and do some stuff within you. Or maybe, maybe, whatever the suffering in which you are to endure, maybe the Lord is using that as a bridge and even a doorway in death to see your kinsman redeemer to be before his very presence, to receive victory only in and through Jesus Christ as he brings about justice and vindication over everything in which you've experienced. If every aspect of our lives is to bring glory and to point itself to Jesus Christ, then even the very suffering that happens upon your life likewise should point itself to Jesus Christ. So maybe the Lord allows us to hear this message this morning because maybe, unbeknownst to you, a season of suffering is getting ready to happen to you. Or maybe to your family or someone you know. Or maybe you're here and you're in a season of suffering. Maybe you're at home and that's the very reason why you stayed home from church because you're suffering and you don't want no one else to... To, to be bothered. You don't want to, you don't want to be uh, uh, just a charity to nobody. The Spirit asks you in this moment, if you're in a season of suffering, how are you suffering? In the worst of it all, are you pointing to Jesus Christ? When it appears all hope is all gone, are you yet still clinging to the promise of Jesus Christ and life eternal with him? Maybe you're hearing you, you're in a season of suffering and you don't have Jesus Christ. 
I believe the Lord is speaking to you to say, take hold of this person in Jesus Christ who gave up the beauty of heaven and came to the bounds of earth to take your sins, to bear what should have been yours. The wrath he endured should have been yours and ours. The sin he took was ours and yours. He's calling you into relationship with him. And he's not promising a life that's just a bed of roses, but he is promising his presence, which is greater than anything else that could ever be given. If you're a believer, ask yourself, how are you suffering in this season? But the last thing is endure with assurance. Endure with assurance. Not not necessarily assurance that you'll get the answers you desire in your time of suffering. Not necessarily assurance that, that you'll even be brought out of the suffering. But assurance to say with confidence that when everything else is lost, I got Jesus. That, that assurance to say that I am never alone when I'm suffering even when I'm hooked up to that machine in dialysis, even when I'm experiencing the broken heart of a marriage that's not going right, even in the worst of it all, there is yet Jesus who is near. Endure with assurance that you have a kinsman redeemer who promises in his word that he is coming back for the church, his bride. He will defeat everything that has plagued us including sin and Satan. And we will dwell in his presence with eternity forever. So why is all this important? Well, it's for you to know, regardless of what your eyes may see, what your ears may hear, and what your body may experience, is for you to confidently begin to declare the same words even Horatio declared in the worst of his suffering. That whatever our lot, our kinsman redeemer has taught you and I to say, it is well. It is well with our soul. It is well. There's going to be some people in the banner, by the prayer banner over there. They would love the opportunity to pray with you. If you're in a season of suffering, uh, they would love the opportunity to touch and agree with you. Maybe you're here and you don't have Jesus Christ, and now you feel it's the time to take hold of Jesus Christ. They're going to be at the prayer banner. They would love the opportunity to touch and agree and to pray with you during this next song. Please don't allow the eyes and the people in this room uh, to distract you. If you need the Lord, if you need prayer, take the opportunity that is afforded to you. Would you join me in prayer? Father, thank you for the truth of your word. It is indeed a lamp into our feet and a light into our pathway. Father, thank you, Lord, that we are never alone in our suffering. God, if I can be completely real and honest, at times it feels that way. It feels that we're the only one navigating through it. It feels like we're the only ones crying tears in the middle of the night. It feels as if we are by ourselves. But thank you, Lord, that you do promise never 
to leave us or to forsake us. God, you are indeed there. But not only are you there, God, you are so incredibly kind through Jesus Christ to, to give us this hope and this comfort and assurance even in suffering. And we do have a kinsman redeemer whom we can say is ours, is mine, who knows us and we know him who loves us to the point that he gave us life while we were sinners. And before we could love him, God, you loved us. We have this kinsman redeemer. We believe he's going to return and he's going to defeat everything that has plagued us in this life. And God, when it's all said and done, we will see you. Thank you for the hope that comes even in the midst of suffering. And God, I pray for my brother and sister in this moment. I pray Lord, that if they are enduring this time and this season of suffering, God, I pray that their trust would be overwhelmingly and just abound in you. I pray that you would be near to them, that you would wipe every tear, and you would strengthen them. I pray, Lord, for those who are unbelievers, that they would take hold of you and your word in this moment and would leave here with the best assurance and hope for life and even in death. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for its truth. Continue your good work within your people. I pray and ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, and our kinsman, Redeemer. Amen.